3: my what's Dilbert my guy is probably the way we should introduce this because if I say Scott Adams is the subject of today's episode like 60% of people are gonna go huh uh so I'm gonna say this is an episode about the Dilbert guy welcome to behind the bastards a podcast about terrible people now listen folks I know what you're all saying the Dilbert guy didn't he just draw comics how could he be one of the worst people in all of history and the answer to that question is because he irritates me. Like yes, let's 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 clear the air here. We're talking about a guy who has drawn cartoons. He's not a well, he did kill one guy maybe um by an action. We'll get to that. But we're not talking about like a war criminal or a dictator, but he's a really unpleasant man and the way in which he lost his mind and became even more unpleasant and eventually had a racist breakdown that got his comic strip removed from like a thousand newspapers is super interesting. So that's that's who we're talking about today. And in order to help me peruse the life of Scott Adams, flip through it like a collection of Dilbert comic books or comic strips, uh, I have Randy Milholland. Uh, Randy is the author and illustrator of the Something Positive webcomic, which I've been reading off and on for like a decade, uh, and he is now legally the uh, the legal recognized guardian of Popeye the Sailor. Randy, how are you doing today?
4: I'm fine, thank you so much, and uh, I feel like I should say to keep from being fired um, (laughs) that my opinions are my own and in no way Mm -hmm. reflect King Feature Syndicate or their parent Mm -hmm. company, Hearst, uh, Mm -hmm. just to kind of save my ass. Um, But yes, I I do, in fact, own Popeye. I am destroying him, according to (laughs) everyone who reads Breitbart. So yeah,
3: you have been a a professional cartoonist for longer than I've been doing just about anything. and. You also have I, one of the things that because like, obviously, with web comics, there's a lot of people who have been professionally cartooning, but who don't have kind of experience with the syndicates or with, you know, kind of the old traditional any of the old traditional structures of like um, newspaper cartoons. Um And you've kind of got your foot in both of those worlds, which I think will, will probably yeah. be helpful for context on this stuff. So I wanted to start by asking what what do you think about scott Adams where how, where where
4: have you been on Scott <laughs> most of um, your life? Most of my life I've managed to avoid him uh, like in a friend of mine introduced me to his comic in ninety five or so mm-hmm. one of his books uh mm-hmm. my friend Eileen's because I was we met through computer bulletin board systems because I am old mm-hmm. and she was like, well you like tech shit. So you'll enjoy Dilbert. And I read a page of it and said, I do not, in fact, enjoy Dilbert, and I <laughs> do not need to read it further. Um, I remember it replaced Pogo in the Fort Worth Star Telegram, which annoyed me a little bit. And then I remember the TV series. The opening song was uh, Danny Elfman's theme from Forbidden Zone, his, a movie his brother made. Ah, um, I knew it was Danny, Danny Elfman. I didn't realize that he, had, it he had made been sock puppet accounts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's a repurposed theme song from a, uh, a movie that Richard Elfman made with the Knights of Wango Bungo in
3: 1980, I think. Oh, man. Um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah.
4: It's yeah, got Elfman Danny Elfman I'm not but, like, out of recycled. Bed to make that song, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah it's the musical equivalent of one of those like glass soda bottles that's you know, got like a, a ring around it because it's been recycled so many times
4: just shaking the thing song out like no no, no, it, no, right no. this will be fine this will work for delbert the <laughs> show <laughs> yeah honestly it did it, yeah. it was better it was that song was probably the best part of that show and yeah then years later I know he made some sock puppet accounts to defend himself and then uh, he hated black people.
3: Yeah. he he. So kind of the thing about Scott is that he was a successful cartoonist and there was not much that you would note about him other than that if you weren't super paying attention. If you paid attention to Scott, because I as a kid read not just his comics, but a bunch of his nonfiction books. If you paid a lot of attention to him, there were there have always been some weird things that you would notice, but it was just kind of like, oh, that's an odd thing to believe. Oh, that's an odd thing to believe. And then about five years ago, He really pretty sharply started getting very racist and very bigoted and super right wing and kind of at the same time convinced himself that like he had discovered the uh, the kind of almost supernatural secret secrets to persuasion. And it was his job to explain how Donald Trump was ushering in like a new era for humanity by his his magical persuader skills Um, this is all uh, uh, like his kind of heel turn has been fascinating. And so I wanted to just kind of like dig into what happened with this guy because very few people, Scott kind of had a lifelong license to print infinite money. And he decided to give that up in order to get really angry in his like video blog. Um, and, and just like spout bullshit to a fairly small audience of like, weirdo Trump supporters. Um and it's it's interesting to me how he gets to that point because he's not there's not anything kind of he's not always um someone for whom there's warning signs, So I think I think he's interesting and we're gonna talk about him because I'm interested in, in Scott Adams, the Dilbert guy.
4: Um so let's start. Randy I, I will admit if you can't Yeah. If you came, to, mm. yeah, if no, you no, came no, twenty years ago and said, hey Scott Adams is gonna be like this psycho conservative you know, shit bag like the guy who made all the weird vegetarian food for 7-Eleven. Yeah, like that, yeah, that guy like that. No, that was a weird, unexpected.
3: No, of course, if you were to say one of the one of the newspaper cartoonists you read is going to turn out to be like a weird uh, fascist, I would have been like, oh, yeah, high and lowest. Definitely the high and lowest guy. Right. That's the-
4: let's not go for the Brown family. They've had a lot recently. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Scott Adams was born on June 8th, 1957 in Wyndham, New York. Uh, his father was a postal worker and his mother was a stay at home mom. Uh, and I always like to point out when guys who grow up into like far right, Uber capitalist influencers grow up in a comfortable, safe, stable environment as a child, because they're born in a period of time in which a government employee can support a family and own a house on one income. Um, and Scott's one of those people. So just keep that in your mind when he has his heel heels. <sighs> uh, yeah, we get most of our information on Scott's early life through him off and on in some of his books. My primary source for his childhood, although I'm not my only one, is the 20 Years of Dilbert comic collection, uh, which he published in like 2002. If you're into comic, obviously, which which you are, Randy, you know how like you had those like the 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 far Side big collection. Oh, yeah. For, um, the Gary Tresorys. Larson. Yeah, he writes a bunch of stuff at the beginning and he mm-hmm. kind of like explains different comics. There was another ver- one for um, Calvin and Hobbes. Most of like the really big cartoonists get one of those at some point in their career. And Scott, Ad, this is the, that like this is what I'm using as a big source for his
4: childhood. Oh, God, right? I, I, you had to yeah. read that, too, didn't you? I'm so sorry.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is he was starting to become a little bit of a maniac when this came out in 2008. He hadn't fully heel turned, but he was start. It's like it's like the pivot document of his like turn into a far right, like fascist weirdo. It's Scott Adams, um, I
4: hate sand moment. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Where he's not fully broken bad yet, but now you can tell he's about to go murder the younglings. Oh, Jesus <laughs> Christ.
4: I assume they all like rat Bert and like just yeah. have like weird animation.
3: Mm-hmm. It's interesting because we're going to talk about like some of his early drawings as a kid too, um, which are weirdly enough a lot technically better than Dilbert. <laughs> um,
4: so <sighs> why not? I mean, hey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> part of comics is how fast can you draw something? Yeah. So that's why you see a lot of like. Yeah. Yeah, like, like there's some old high and low strips I remember thinking, of, like, this is some stunning stuff, amazing angles, yeah. but it probably took for way too damn long for how much they're being paid. Well, yeah, and this is one of those
3: things where like Scott himself pokes a lot of fun at the Dilbert art, but obviously like it works like it was yeah. a very, it was a successful comic for years and years. But anyway, it's interesting. We'll, 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 we'll get into that in a second. But yeah, this collection gets published in 2008. Um, and it's kind of like right at this hinge period where I think pr- before this, most people who knew anything about Scott would have default kind of assumed, oh, he's probably like a vaguely liberal, maybe even kind of like lefty guy because the comics are kind of at least superficially seem like they might be kind of critical about capitalism and about like corporate. They're not actually, but uh, you most people, I think, probably just sort of assumed that if they they weren't super up on the Dobert lore. Um, Yeah, so it's a very interesting period. We'll be talking about that and a couple other uh, 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 recollections that have been published about that period of his life as sources here. In 1963, when Scott's six years old, uh, his family was in the habit of taking him on trips to his uncle's farm up the road from their house. Uh, This uncle had a collection of Peanuts comic strip books, uh, and Scott would sit down and stare at them eagerly even before he could read. Uh, In his book, he describes being fascinated by them because they had what he calls the X factor, Um, but which I would say is just the result of kids being drawn to comics uh, and Peanuts being a particularly good comic at drawing kids in. Um, But, you know, I had more or less the same experience as a kid, right? Like my my uncle was the guy in my family who had a bunch of published comic book collection collections. And I, I certainly read a shitload of peanuts. I read all of his Calvin and Calvin and Hobbes books. I read Bloom County, uh, Farside, Foxtrot, even some like deeper cuts, like Gahan Wilson's demented oeuvre, oh, um, nice. who, Oh yeah. I love Gahan. If you, if you, if you like Farside, you should check out Gahan Wilson's stuff.
4: My early memory is getting my hands on, uh, Poco books. Oh yeah. 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 Art, Which was just astounding because my family yeah. tends to be a little more on the left side. So yeah. like Pogo was definitely something my dad was a big fan of.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I read a little bit of Pogo as a kid because we were just talking about those like big collections of comics for like Bill Watterson and stuff. His big Calvin and Hobbes collection, he writes about being a Pogo fan. And so that was like one of the comics I looked into because I was like, oh, my favorite cartoonist likes Pogo.
4: You need to know, like he did a whole storyline making fun of the John Burke Society in the 50s <laughs> when, at their height. <laughs> He was taking shots uh, at them when he could have gotten in trouble for it. That's like Walt awesome. Kelly fucking hated them. It was yeah. beautiful.
3: But anyway, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. No based pogo. I love it. Um. So Scott kind of goes through this this journey. Um. And it's one of those things where like he has this quote in the book where he says, "My parents always told me I could grow up to be anything I wanted to be. I decided to grow up to be Charles Schultz." Truly, the world has
4: that shit. Yeah. Don't it's don't just, tell him that. <laughs> it never ends well. My parents told me I could w- grow up to work in an office. Yeah, and uh, I rebelled against it and I, I draw comics, but it seems like everyone who like their parents told them that I'm going to tell my daughter tonight like you're going to work in a factory.
3: Mm-hmm. I, I did have, I mean, that's what my, more or less how my childhood was. Cause I also wanted to be a cartoonist and I told my mom and she said, do something that has a pension. Um, but <laughs> yeah, the that... joke was on her cause those don't exist anymore.
4: <laughs> oh my God. It's yeah. Yeah. Like I, my parents, same thing Is like, I'm gonna be a cartoonist. And my dad just said, you, you don't have to yeah. you can't do something else. <laughs>
3: it's uh th- this quote from Scott is really funny because it gives you an idea of how different things were back then so he's like this is him talking about like why he wanted to be a cartoonist uh after all how hard could it be you draw pictures you write some words it seemed like easy work to me and from what i heard the pay was good
4: <laughs> I, I will say in the 50s if you had a good comic it, yeah it was great
3: yeah in the uh, 50s yes. changed
4: drastically.
3: <laughs> yeah you don't hear a lot of people being like i want to get rich i'm gonna i'm
4: gonna get into comics not a lot of smart people, anyway. No.
3: Um, yeah, I mean, generally, whether you're talking, like, especially if you're talking about, like, um, you know, it's like, superhero comics, like, the most famous stories are all, he created this character that's worth a billion dollars, and then he died of starvation.
4: Oh, like Siegel and <laughs> Schuster getting <screwed laughs> yeah, exactly. out, and the, the artist losing his eyesight by the 1970s mm-hmm. living in a nursing home, and, like, mm-hmm. Warner Brothers having to be guilted <laughs> into paying them $30,000 each mm-hmm. year for the rest of their lives, but hated doing it.
3: But but this this was the 50s and yeah. uh, n- none of that was known yet. So nope, nope. little Scott falls in love with Peanuts and grows up being like, I'm going to I'm going to make all those sweet, sweet cartoon dollars. And he draws a lot of little cartoons as a kid. Uh, these are mostly kind of like one panel strips. They're sort of similar and const- they're not really far side in terms of the kind of sense of humor. It's like I mean, he, he posts some of the drawings he did as like a six and seven year old in here. They're like, I mean, they're like cartoons a little kid draws, but yeah. It, it, yeah, they're like single panel strips, a lot of them. By the time he was 11 years old, he'd moved on to Mad Magazine, which makes sense. Mad was super big back then, very uh, was culturally a, was a relevant. Golden era right there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and Mad Magazine, for those of you who kind of missed the Mad Era, had a brilliant artist named Sergio Aragones, uh, who I learned while re- researching this episode is still
4: alive. Yeah, um, I, uh, he is one of the last of the original. Yeah, I, I
3: was pleasantly surprised to hear that.
4: We just um, lost, um, I can't remember Al, the, the gentleman who did the, the fold ins, he just died at over 100. Oh, I didn't know. Well, that's that's a big to be recently. honest. But yeah, yeah. Argonese is still doing his combat, grew, yeah, he still does a lot of stuff.
3: Yeah, he's a he's a he's an amazing guy, um, an incredible cartoonist. He was kind of known as being the fastest cartoonist on Earth for a while, and he did if you were a Mad reader, he did the marginal cartoons, like he did other stuff too, but like those little bitty like joke cartoons, kind of stuck in between panels and on like the side margins of the Mm -hmm. papers in Mad Magazine. And it was like this guy is for those of you like one of my biggest influences as a comedy writer because when I worked at Cracked, one of my first jobs was picking images to go in between paragraphs of the articles and write little joke captions for them. And like Sergio's work was kind of the thing that I figure like that was kind of my earliest inspiration for that kind of humor and stuff.
4: Um, uh, again, I always loved mad him a lot. Magazine influence cracked again. Uh, yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. The, no, this is the only time that was the one influence mad had no, on crack. No time. It never <laughs> yeah.
4: cracked formed, came fully formed mm-hmm. from the head of Zeus mm-hmm. one day. Yeah. There was in no way.
3: I I'm the only one who sullied it with Mad Magazine vibes. But yeah. So <laughs> S- Scott Scott and I have like I I identify a lot with elements of his early childhood like mine was was not dissimilar other than that I had access I think a to lot of more kids comics. Would, yeah.
4: Like especially comics kids? Yeah, like, yeah. I mean we all most of us especially if you're an outsider kid who's mm-hmm. was a little nerdy. Mad Magazine kind of was a siren song. Like it's here's yeah. the weird stuff. You can be a little cynical, you can be a little mean and you can have fun with
3: it. Yeah, exactly. It was it was it was really special for a while. You know, now now it's an, yet another zombie brand, but boy in its day. Yeah. Um so Scott his parents do kind of like realize he's he's got this love for cartooning and he's drawing consistently for years. So they get him like books on cartooning and how to draw. Um and he he becomes pretty dedicated to like learning some of the tougher technical things like drawing like proper hands and stuff. Um, so this is a kid who's got uh, the ability to kind of, like, stick with, you know, the stuff that he's fascinated in. He's he's more disciplined than, I think, most of us who who wind up being comics nerds but don't get into cartooning, uh, which makes sense. Yeah. Um, and he's, he's pretty good as a kid. Uh, in 1967, he applies to a cereal box contest, which is, was a thing that used to happen for who could do the best drawing uh-huh. of Old Faithful. Um, he doesn't win the contest, but he gets a camera as a runner-up prize. And this is in some ways that will turn out to be kind of dark, a foundational moment for him. Um, not because like, oh, it God damn it. <laughs> not because it convinces him to be a cartoonist, which is fine. But like his, his, so basically like as he enters this contest, he's super excited that he's going to win. And his mom does the generally responsible thing. And she's like, look, honey, a lot of kids are going to enter. Most of them aren't going to get prizes. Like you're probably not going to win anything. Don't, you know, get your hopes up too much. Um, but then Scott gets a prize. And so, this kind of like hits his brain like a sledgehammer. Quote, I started to suspect that beating the long odds wasn't as hard as it seemed. This became a pattern that repeated itself throughout my life. God damn it. That doesn't sound sinister, but it's going to metastasize into
4: something like problematic. No, pretty it sounds fucking sinister to me. Oh,
3: okay, good. Okay, good. Yeah, that is a weird <laughs> way like to a, think about it. That, that sounds like a
4: supervillain. I've read too many cog books to be like, ah, this is the you beat the long odds. Oh, God damn it. Neil O'Brien, it's on those. Yeah. Similar. It is
3: like I do think it's odd his obsession on like winning this meaning that he's beaten the odds as opposed to like, oh, maybe I'm better at cartooning than I am thought. That's cool. Like I should work more on this. He, it's like, ah, like I managed to like hack reality. Like that's really is kind of the road he's going to start traveling down. Yeah. So the next year, his town holds an Easter egg hunt and the grand prize is a golden egg with like 10 bucks in it. Uh, now, obviously, this is like the 50s or 60s. So $10 is roughly equivalent to the GDP of Mississippi today. Um, it was it was a big incentive. Good price. Yeah, uh, Scott. Scott found the egg and he got his picture in the paper, uh, which he says is what gave him a taste for fame. Um, it also oh, furthered his.
4: <laughs> don't Again, don't, everything, don't... everything it's just like, oh, uh, he's that shitty kid who's like, I'm getting attention. Yeah. How can I get more attention? Every time I look at like
3: influencer culture and like the the dark side of TikTok, I get more convinced that no one should get their picture taken or video taken of them until they're like fifty five. And that way, when kids are like, "Hey, do you want to? I don't know, do you want to become influencers?" People will be like, "No, those are all like weird looking old people. Let's uh, let's let's paint watercolors."
4: <laughs> Part of me wants to say, oh, I'll say, unless they're being shamed, but you know what? Some people will enjoy that, and mm-hmm.
3: yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, Scott is one of them. Yeah. So he, this is what gives him his taste for fame. Uh, it also furthers his understanding that, quote, beating long odds seemed easier than everyone kept saying. Now, again, this is like, it says a lot about Scott. It's interesting that he's so focused on like the odds and that he's special for beating the odds as opposed to like, oh, like, you know, th- this was a nice experience in my childhood. Um, it's also like weird because it, it, none of this seems like to be particularly the result of luck he probably did well in that cartooning contest because he worked hard on drawing and the egg contest, like it's a small town. There's not, he says there's like 30 kids in his graduating class. The fact that you would have like gotten, you know, won the Easter egg hunt one year in your childhood actually seems pretty likely. Like when you're talking about like a town with maybe 30
4: kids in it, that's not weird to me. It's not (laughs) like he's trying to solve some weird riddle. Like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
3: He didn't like stumble upon like an unsolved math equation in the in, on the in like the chalkboard of his high school and like fix it or anything like that. Um, it's like yeah, I mean, there's 30 kids in your town. You probably did 10 of these Easter egg hunts. Yeah, it's not weird that you won one of them. Um, yeah. Anyway. Scott was now growing convinced that the universe had picked him for greatness. So the next thing he does as a, like, I don't think it's, think it's 10 or 11 at this point, he applies to a correspondence course called the Famous Artists Course for Talented Young People. Um, this still exists today in some form. Um, Is that the draw a, the
4: turtle thing? It may, it, I mean, it may have
3: been. That was not like, I don't think that was it at the time when he was doing it. It was found, It was founded in part by Norman Rockwell. It's like a long distance course. Um, okay. and it's interesting. Yeah. like the ads make it look, I, I, and I think this is an errant belief, but looking at the ads from back then, you get the feeling that it's like a con because it's really focused on how cartooning can teach you how to make money at home. Um, I don't think it was like people still sell the books online. There's folks who will say they're pretty good, like guides to like, or er, like drawing and stuff. Um, so I'm not going to shit on this program. It's just weird. Anytime, anytime something tells me today that you can make money at home, I assume that it's some sort of a con. Um, but I don't know that that I was the case shit on that because it
4: gave Scott Adams hope.
3: Yeah, it did give him hope. Um, <laughs> although it's about to crush his hope, but Good. before it does Someone that, yeah, it too? <laughs> he files an application packet, which shows he's got some talent. Sophie's yeah. going to show you the drawings. And um, he's
4: trying. He's actually putting the effort in. I give him that
3: yeah yeah like he's got there's an a, an early like he's there's a, a drawing of a jalopy in there that's like pretty good for like a little kid like the perspective is decent like cars are hard when i was a little kid drawing cartoons i was never a, any good at drawing cards um so like he's he's not bad yeah. uh for his age oh, that's really yeah
4: yeah that's quite a good yeah you're looking at that's the drawing really, of the man really good re- yeah, yeah, no, like yeah, that solid. is really well done. That's skill. Yeah. Like I would yeah. have not realized he had that ability.
3: No, yeah, it's like not like Sophie. Scroll down, show him the jalopy because like the perspective on the car is also the jalopy. has
4: been, cars are not easy. So that yeah, yeah. That's, he's
3: solid. He's like he's th- these are good cartoons. Um, yeah, the, like yeah, I think that kind of surprised me because they're like technically a lot more nuanced. Like Dilbert is again, as we said. Effective in terms of its art style, obviously, but it's not complicated, right? um Whereas, like you know, th- that shows that he's got some, some more, some deep, or at least had at some point, like deeper technical ability.
5: Hmm.
4: It's interesting. Well, I mean, um, the argument he made about like you need to learn the basics before you create sure. style. Yeah, like, if yeah. like early Schultz versus what Peanuts was, yeah, very different. Yeah, I mean, even
3: just like a guy like everyone knows is a great cartoonist, Bill Watterson, you look at kind of a normal strip of Calvin and Hobbes, and then you look at the, um, you know, the ones like these big Sunday spreads he did, where he's he's got like Spaceman Spiff and shit, and it's a lot more mm-hmm. kind of like um, almost uh, 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 psychedelic, fantastic in a lot of ways. Um,
4: they were also called yeah. back to the golden age of comics when, yeah. like, no, you're going to run this comic the way I present it. You're not going to butcher up the panels and put it different directions. Uh, and he was, also started off as a political cartoonist, so his training is a lot different. and He, yeah, like, very thick, heavy line work.
3: Yeah, yeah, and you you see a uh, uh, Berkeley Breathed is a uh, kind of in a, in a similar vein where like he he would do especially when he did like Outland and stuff. These like so much more lavish mm-hmm. strips that. Today, you could. I mean, you could. uh, Thankfully, one of the things that I love about online cartooning is you. You do get. There's a lot more of that stuff available if you know where to look for it, because you can publish anything online if you have like the right kind of you know uh, uh, platform to to put it up on. As opposed to you know water when you read that book, Watterson did like the 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 collection of his where he writes a lot about his background. A lot of it is him kind of mourning how much comics pages are shrinking, how much less space there is, how much less like option for putting in color there is. Uh, and how sad mm-hmm. that makes him is a lover of the art form. And I, I do think like that's one of the things internet comic uh, comics have kind of reversed the slide on uh, to an extent, which, yeah. which is, yeah, makes me
4: happy. It, it is heartbreaking, but it's also like uh, you're on deadlines too. Like yeah. I did a storyline in Popeye where I got behind because like, I'm going to do really hyper detailed art. And like, that's great, but you're getting behind, and we have a deadline that to getting in.
3: Yeah, it is one of those, it's, like... It's all... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry.
4: No, yeah, it's just like, you know, you're being paid for this. Don't... You don't have to go beyond it, buddy.
3: Yeah, and I mean, obviously, like, when you're doing anything five times a week, like a comic or, I don't know, a news podcast, it will grind you down if you let it... <laughs> uh- um, mm-hmm. It's yeah. It's yeah, uh, those no. production schedules quite brutal, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So Scott does pretty well <laughs> on this artwork, application yeah. to a cartooning school, but the school rejects him for being too young, uh, which temporarily causes him to give up on his dreams of being a cartoonist and pick a more attainable oh, life goal. He? God, he's got. He's like in his early teens, maybe at this point. I think like, well, like no, middle, maybe what like eleven or twelve.
4: Think yeah. I do?
3: yeah, I don't know. He. Um, I, I think he was just like. Had The way he describes it, he had kind of, because of these other incidents of, like, unlikely in his eyes. Success. I found an egg. Give me yeah, a, exactly. A I found an egg. Surely I'll get into this cartooning school.
4: Um, Look, um, honey, I found an egg with $10 in it. I think I'm ready to replace Al Cap. Okay.
3: Yeah, he, he always has these like weird leaps in his head of like, well, because this happened, this seems possible. But anyway, he gets bummed out, so he decides I'm not going to be a cartoonist, and he, 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 he goes to the work of kind of like picking another career for himself. Uh, quote, I looked around my town and learned that exactly two people had high incomes. One was the only doctor in town, and the other was the only lawyer. I didn't like touching other people's guts and tendons and whatnot, so I set my sights on a career in law. Um, he is always kind of focused in this point at a job that's going to make him uh, a lot of money. Uh, I do think it's kind of worth noting, and this is a thing that like he's open about in his early Dilbert career. That like, yeah, this was always about making money for me before he kind of gets uh, weirder into evangelizing some of his uh, spiritual ideas. Nothing
4: um, wrong with that either. I mean, that's no, nothing Jim, wrong. Jim no, Davis, it's like, yeah, always put <laughs> like this was a career path. He went. Yeah. The difference is, Jim Davis is not trying to incite. Riots,
3: yeah, and nonsense like that. G- Jim Davis has never tried to convince anybody of his like philosophical conclusions from a career of drawing Garfield. <laughs> he seems paying, to have mostly been happy Garfield to get filled with yeah. suction cups. Da- Jim Davis is one of like seems to have a pretty realistic understanding that like wow, I've got I made hundreds of millions of dollars drawing a cat. Just gonna kind of let that one ride. <laughs> I'm not gonna not gonna poke Lady Fate too much nice. over this. <laughs> so. In his nearly unreadable book, (laughs) Win Bigley, Scott claims that during uh, this first period of interest um, in drawing, he was a regular churchgoer. His parents had him attend the Methodist church near their house, and he claims he started experiencing doubt in his faith when he noticed that prayer didn't seem to influence what happened in his life in any way. The tipping point, as he describes it, is when he heard the story of Jonah and the whale— uh, the nut of that story, if you weren't raised Christian, involves a guy getting stuck in a whale's belly for three days before he gets spat out and he's not dead because because God stuff. Uh, Scott, as a little kid, is yeah, like, I don't
4: know, It's one of those amazing stories in the Old Testament. Like, don't you feel inspired? <laughs> God's a sociopath. <laughs> yeah. Why would he do that to somebody? That seems. Yeah.
3: But and Scott has this, Scott's problem with it is that, like, well, people couldn't survive being in a whale. Uh, so he decides, you know, that means that the Bible's not real. Uh, I called a meeting with my mother and announced I was discontinuing my religious education. I explained my new hypothesis that she and all other believers were being duped for reasons I couldn't understand, but I planned to get to the bottom of it. My mother listened to my reasoning, (laughs) acknowledged that I was making a well-informed decision and never asked me to attend church again. Um, And that's, you know, fine enough on his mom's behalf. uh, But it's weird to me the lesson. He he always takes such odd lessons from things Um, because what he writes about this is. Uh, According to my new worldview, I was the only person, as far as I knew, who could see religion for the scam that it was. Obviously, there were plenty of non-believers in the world, but they were invisible to me in my pre-internet small-town life. And I find that really peculiar. Not the fact that, like, obviously, you're in, like, the 50s, 60s, you decide you're an atheist, you live in a small town. Pretty good chance that you, you know, might not, like, know anybody, right? Uh, Or, like, that else that identifies as an atheist. Not weird. no one's gonna be honest.
4: Like if you're in a small town like that, you're like, like, yeah, I'm an atheist. Oh, cool, you're leaving town now. (laughs) Yeah, it's not weird to me that he didn't know anyone else like that.
3: It is weird that he didn't know it existed, right? Like that he because he basically claims I didn't realize there were other people who weren't believers. That seems a little peculiar to me. But also, information was much more difficult to acquire in that era, so I'll I'll give that one to Scott. What's odd to me is that the kind of beliefs and and I I
4: just think also you have parents who will. Actively shield their kids from the idea, like you know. Yeah. You and know, I grew up in Texas, in, in yeah. Texas, which is a you know the taint of the Bible Belt. You know how it goes. It, Parents, will yeah, anything they can to shield their kids.
3: Yeah, so I'll I'll give him that one. You know, he especially given the area that he comes up in. But what's odd to me is that when he decides he doesn't believe in God, the schema, the belief schema that he develops for himself is something he later describes as the alien experiment filter. Um, and it's, I don't know. I, I'm not, I, I try not to criticize the beliefs of children on this show, but I'm going to read a quote for you about Scott deciding what he believes.
4: And <laughs> you tell me what you think about this. As a parent, I'm happy to tell a child they're wrong.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, someone should have done that with Scott here. Quote, the alien experiment filter imagined that intelligent creatures from another world impregnated my mother so they could find out what happens when humans and aliens mate. According to that filter, the aliens were watching me at all times. Now, that's an odd thing for a child to, t- to the decide
4: fuck? they believe about the world.
3: What <laughs> the fuck?
4: The fact that, like, alien impregnation is involved here. running a train on my mom, and now they're <laughs> yeah. watching <laughs> yeah, that's oh that is a God. really weirdly specific belief.
3: It's not like I wonder if I'm an alien, but like specifically, I wonder if the aliens, yeah, like did it with my mom so that they could see if it worked. That that's peculiar. That is peculiar. No judgment. He's a kid, but that's weird.
4: <laughs> that is a little bit of a weird belief. I mean. Um, Look, we were weird kids. Our brains went to weird places. I'm sure if I yeah. sat down and looked at my thoughts, like, ooh, I can't really judge him on this one. But as an adult looking at him, I'm like, really? That's. Yeah, yeah. That's it's less about and judgment like, than being, being okay. like, all right. S- Scott Kid.
3: consistently draws strange conclusions. This from things." isn't it? Yeah. So, uh, you know, who doesn't develop strangely elaborate childhood fantasies of their mother? Uh, being impregnated by aliens.
4: Would it be the uh, sorted gold sellers that might be providing products and services <laughs> no. to this fine podcast?
3: <laughs> the gold sellers definitely do, but like I don't know, <laughs> probably doesn't, right? Is that right, Sophie? Can we say that, or is gonna get angry if we say that they don't have alien impregnation fantasies?
5: I don't know. I bleeped what you just said. Boom. Uh, uh, <laughs> fair enough.
4: <laughs> Empe- Impregn. Fan art—it yeah.
5: needs to be a thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah
3: make make yeah. it happen. Use use Chat GPT or whatever. One of the GPTs. <laughs> uh, uh, get it. Give us give us some AI drawings of, uh, of a <laughs> impregnation Dilbert fetish art. Dilbert
4: like just birthing a yeah box. And don't don't
3: send it to me. Send it to Scott Adams. He he will love that. He's uh, got time now. He's got time now. He's not cartooning anymore. He is cartooning <laughs> yeah, still. Anyway, here's ads.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop.
2: I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded,
3: Ah. We are back. Uh, and we're talking about the Dilbert guy. So he spends several years believing this alien stuff, but it doesn't make him happy. So eventually he lands on atheism as a teenager. Now he claims it like that he decided to be an atheist because it gave him something to argue about with people, which okay. does make him ahead of the curve for like the new atheist remember, movement. Honestly. Yeah, no, that was me as a teenage atheist for sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Now what's odd about that is that he he it's not odd that he's kind of unhappy with it a lot of people like have a, a period when they're younger of of atheism and then move you know to something else uh, that's like a thing that happens just like people have a period where they're super christian or whatever and then choose something else why scott is unhappy with atheism specifically is that he feels like it doesn't let him predict the future that's an odd reason to not like atheism to me. What the um, fuck! I, I don't. That yeah, that's so weird. Yeah, like, that's that's not the point of atheism,
4: Scott. Jesus um, Christ, kid.
3: Yeah, I don't understand why that would be a thing that you would ever have expected to get out of atheism. Um, I also th- don't think that's generally a thing. I there's definitely it's one of the it's one of the things that's compelling this to me is that it kind of hints at something that Scott never writes about. But which I've come to suspect, which is that as a kid, just the culture, the community was into was more sort of into apocalyptic, evangelical Christian culture than maybe he lets on. Um, uh, I don't know this, but it, it, it's one of those things where like most people I yeah. know who are like Christian, who are Muslim, who are Jewish, who are Hindu, who are, you know, Zoroastrian, whatever. Generally, like when they talk about what they get out of faith, it's not it lets me know the future. Um, like it lets me predict the future, but within certain strains of evangelical Christianity, prophecy—the ability of the Bible to be Fuck. used as a as a prediction instrument to determine what's going to happen in the future—is a huge deal. Yeah, um, and that's
4: Baptist. I I remember real fucking ex- well. exactly. Ugh.
3: And that's that's if you're like Catholic, right? You don't mm-hmm. grow up being like the Bible is a tool that lets me predict the future. You know, mm-hmm. that's not really like a thing for Unitarians or Anglicans uh, or Episcopalians, which I was. But it is a thing for that chunk of, like, Pentecostals, Baptists, um, a whole bunch of, like, chunks of kind of, uh, uh, like, really kind of very American sorts of Christianity. Not exclusively, but yeah, that that's kind of a hint I think I have maybe about, like, what sort of the surrounding religious culture that Scott is raised in is like. Maybe he doesn't really notice this much, but the fact that he... The fact that he wants whatever kind of belief system he adopts to help him predict the future is interesting to me, because you don't run into that with most people. Nor should you. Yeah, nor should you. Don't yeah, predicting the future is not a not a not a, a fun business to be in one way or the other. Take that one from me, folks. Um so in 1975, Scott graduates high school. He's about there's about 40 people in his graduating class. Uh, And as he notes, it's really easy to excel in a really small school like that. If you work hard and you've got like, you've got like a pretty good chance of being the best at like whatever thing you're into, because there's not that many other people. Um, He opted not to take chemistry or physics in high school instead of in favor of focusing on a class that was uncommon for a man to take in that period. Typing. Now, Scott claims he picked typing because it was easy and the people who took chemistry got bad grades. Because typing was so easy, his grades were really good, and he was able to graduate as valedictorian of the class and get several scholarships. Um, As a young adult, he was regularly struck by how little use he got out of chemistry and physics and how often typing came in handy. Uh, I mean,
4: he's not wrong on that one. He's he's
3: not wrong. The lesson he takes out of this is like a weird one about how... uh, basically a brain hacking thing where it's like, no, if you like stack, you know, these different talents oh. and stuff together, you can get the, like, we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. Oh, he doesn't God. just take like, uh, yeah. It, 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 again, he's always kind of like makes these odd conclusions. Like his conclusion from this is sometimes doing the wrong thing works out. He um, sounds whereas like he should
4: be one of like Andrew Tate's flunkies more and more. Yeah. He's all, he's got this
3: obsession with like, because something worked out for me, I have been bestowed secret knowledge. As opposed to it, like, I don't know, being like when I was a kid, I had this experience of like, I played a lot of online video games and my mom and dad were worried about it because they were like, that's not going to help you, you know, get a career or succeed. You should be focusing on school. And as it turned out, playing online video games, like taught me how to touch type, taught Mm -hmm. me how to like organize groups of people online, all of these skills that were most useful in my career. I, I don't translate this as like sometimes doing the wrong thing works out. I translate this as like, Sometimes old people don't understand the world as well as young people, right? Yeah, like sometimes, sometimes when you're young, yeah. you just see how
4: trends are yeah. changing. That's just the world, right? Yeah.
3: Like, <laughs> like I, I I, inherently think TikTok is, is silly, but like, obviously, it's a huge deal for a lot of people. And like, the fact that like, I don't know, some kid gets really good at making TikTok videos and makes a millionaire isn't an example of them doing the wrong thing. It, it's an example of the world having changed and me being an old man now.
4: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, good for that little shit. Yeah, good for that
3: little piece of shit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, interesting the way he translates things. So Scott goes to Hartwick College in New York State, and he majors in economics because he heard it was good prep for law school, and he wanted to understand how money worked. Uh, He only takes one art class in college, and this time he does really badly at it. There's more kids in college than he'd ever been around before, and a lot of them had spent— you know, when Scott kind of stopped drawing, they'd kept honing their art, mm-hmm. it, um, it and this is, you. yeah, it fucked him up. Um, I don't think that's an uncommon experience. Well, also,
4: you go from being a kid in a small school where you're the art kid to going yeah. to a place where, oh, this is all the art kids from all these other schools. Oh, and they've been working harder than you. That's yeah, that's gonna humble your Well, it should humble you a little bit.
3: Yeah, in his case, it seems more like he just kind of gives up um, on on art. Um, but he does start to smoke a shitload of weed in his college days. Uh, He was influenced uh, during this period of time when he's getting high a lot by the realization that people seemed a lot nicer when he was high. This caused him to realize that people could experience different realities based on their perception. Now, that's one of the most basic philosophy things in the world right the fact that like perception alters exactly (laughs) like everyone has this realization one way or the other um so i don't think scott is like taking a lot of classes on on philosophy uh i also don't think he listens a lot when other people are talking um his youth seems to have been a process of a precocious kid avoiding any reading that might have challenged him and opened his eyes to thinkers who had like had and experimented and developed these kind of ideas more than maybe he did. He seems to have be convinced that like all of these very normal revelations are him like inventing the wheel for himself, basically. As opposed to like, I don't know, man. That's like what happens to everybody when they get high. Like, like fucking billions of people have had that
4: experience, Scott. It's not really weird. He, he obviously <laughs> feels he's the main character, and therefore every experience. He is the main character. Every experience he has is him. Yeah, having it first, it's never. Oh shit! Do other people feel like this? Like, no, it's me. I will he, educate you on
3: on me. Yeah, it's interesting. He has these perfectly normal experiences, and then that a lot of people have. And like when I, you know, started taking psychedelics and realized how fragile the bonds of what we consider reality are, and how much it can be influenced and changed in very fundamental ways by things that simply alter perception. Uh, it was very humbling and it it caught a lot of things that I had held on to from my belief systems as a young person who grew up, you know, very right wing and conservative, like melted at that point because I realized that all of this certainty I had been raised with did not adequately uh, uh, describe the world anymore. Um, and that I think ever since has made me less certain about the things I believe because I know how easy it is to influence my own mind.
4: See, I, um, I did it with anxiety, anxiety did it for me, I never had to do any drugs. Yeah. I just, I just <laughs> have absolute <laughs> fear nonstop all the fucking mm-hmm. time. <laughs> Very mind altering drug anxiety. <laughs> yes. um,
3: Scott, I think mean like concludes uh, basically like I have, uh, I have had a realization that other people don't have. And so now I like understand the world at a fundamentally different level. Level, um, which I, I is odd. I wonder how much he spent time like talking to people while he was high. Because again, this is pretty basic stuff people chat about when they're stoned at nineteen. But
4: I think he I, whatever. talked at them. He didn't talk to them. He talked at them. Yeah. If they said something, he wasn't paying attention because he wasn't talking. Yeah, you
3: get that feeling a little bit. So, age twenty-one, Scott moves to San Francisco after he what he describes as a near-death experience. Again, he's he's living up in the frigid north. He's driving home one night. Uh, It's snowing and, you know, it's the middle of February. So it's probably below freezing outside and his car dies on the highway. Um, He hasn't brought a coat with him, you know, because he didn't think he was going to be outside much and because young people are dumb. And so he winds up being like, I'm going to freeze to death in this car unless I can find someone to rescue me. So he gets out of the car and he just like sprints down the highway, like trying to find somebody and eventually gets picked up and he doesn't die, obviously. But this whole thing terrifies him. This like brush with death. And he promised himself while he was like sprinting down the freezing highway that if he survived, he'd sell his car and buy a ticket to California, which he does.
4: That's a Um, weird fucking leap.
3: That is an odd. I mean, yeah, I I do know. I will say a lot of people who wind up in California are there because they grew up in like Minnesota and were like, never again,
4: never again. Will I go through a winter like that? I I lived in Boston for nine years and the idea of having returned to winter does make my butthole pucker.
3: Yeah, I feel the same way about the fucking Texas summer, but Uh, that's just, that's come for all of us now.
4: Yes, so, you thought you escaped us, Robert? No, Robert, we smelled where you went, and we followed the trail. Texas comes for us all. So, he
3: moves to San Francisco, he's got a brother there, so he crashes with his brother. Mm -hmm. Uh, Eventually, he gets a job as a bank teller, um, which is, you know, it doesn't go great for him, he gets robbed at gunpoint twice, so he decides, I'm going to apply for a management training position.
4: Uh, I can't fault um, that. that that's
3: yeah, no, fine. sounds <laughs> reasonable. Yeah. yeah, normal, normal reactions here. Um, he rises pretty steadily at the bank and they kind of, he flits around a bunch of different jobs. He does some time programming computers. He manages like a contract negotiation team. And by his own kind of recollection, he's bad at all of these jobs that like they move him to. Um, because and, and he, I think this is pretty reasonable. He's like, yeah, they never kept me because I was, good enough at my job, they kept moving me to other jobs, but they never gave me enough time there to get good at them. Um, I don't think that's an uncommon experience people have in the corporate world.
4: Definitely not. Um,
3: And he he kind of learns as a defensive mechanism during this period to deflect from his ignorance by developing a sense of humor that he was able to use to kind of like please audiences of business executives um, and make them maybe less likely to judge him when he's bad at the stuff that he's doing. This is going to be an invaluable skill for writing Dilbert. Quote, several of my jobs at the bank involved making presentations to upper management. I seasoned my presentation with, presentations with comics to keep the audience awake and to have a business reason for sitting around drawing comics at work. My comics weren't funny in the ha-ha sense. That's certainly true, Scott. But they reminded people of their jobs, and that seemed to be enough. I believe my first published comic was the mole that I drew on the cover of the company newsletter. Um, so yeah, this is kind of how he gets back into cartooning. Over the course of a couple of years, there's two characters that he draws more than the other characters he's doing. And one of these is like a guy with glasses and a weird looking tie who's going to become Dilbert. Another is a dog that's based on his old family dog that's going to become Dogbert. Those are the I'm sure most people are at least vaguely familiar with the fact that those are the two big characters in his comic strip. Um, Now, the timing here is a little unclear. But while this is all going on, as he's kind of like entering the corporate world, Scott starts experimenting with hallucinogenic mushrooms. Now the San Francisco Bay area is a wonderful place to experiment with mushrooms. And Scott has a good time. He came, he, his first trip is like right after he moves there, he's 21 years old. And he says that it's the best day of his life. Like, or at least in 2008, he wrote that that was like the best day of his life. Well, he uh, hadn't anyone
4: killed yet. So it was, yeah, he, had, <laughs> he, he hadn't
3: killed anybody yet. He hadn't taken a life. <laughs> um, now, I don't think that's uncommon. I, I think a lot of people uh, look back at like their first time on mushrooms, like yeah, it was the best experience of my entire life. And some people, it's the worst. Uh, but but generally, a lot of people have have this experience of it. It's not an uncommon thing. I will bow Scott, to
4: your knowledge as I have never done any drugs.
3: Yeah, I don't like recommend it ad hoc to people, but a, a, I mean, there's actually data on this, right? Like they yeah. did. There was this famously the Good Friday experiments where they give gave mushrooms to a bunch of divinity students and like an overwhelming number of them 20 years later were like, yeah, it's still one of the most influential spiritual experiences of my life.
4: Um, And and even microdosing shrooms is supposed to be pretty good for a lot of like mental health. It it can be, it can be.
3: Um, It's one of those things like I'm, this is a little off topic of Scott. I'm, I'm very pro people having the right to and experimenting with hallucinogens. There are, I mean, one of the things that does increasingly concern me is what we're learning about the ways in which people who have a, a, a family tendency towards schizophrenia um, can have schizophrenic breaks as a result of taking psychedelics or even just marijuana. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, whenever I talk about, I, I do think many, perhaps even most people can benefit from psychedelics. Uh, yeah. It always pays to be aware of your family history and take great care when doing that stuff. Cause there, there are potentially consequences with it too. Um, it's important. Not, yeah, but Scott has a great time, right? Yes. Uh, g- great experience, uh, not an uncommon experience. Uh, he benefits from it by developing an understanding that his own interpretation of reality is just one of many and not necessarily the true, truest one. That's a good thing to realize about the world. Uh, it's certainly a thing I think most people who become healthy adults have some version of this realization Um, Scott writes it as a positive Realization but then at the end Of this section of his book win bigly Which is a stupid book about winning Arguments and how Donald Trump is uh, Fucking god king he writes Quote kids please don't take drugs Drugs can be dangerous I don't recommend Trying marijuana or psychedelics You'll get a similar perceptual shift by Reading this book I designed it to do exactly That right now
4: I Um, hate him I fucking Hate him Oh, my I, fucking
3: God. I, I know what I just said about being cautious with drugs. But if your choices between reading Scott's book and doing drugs, choose drugs. Every time. Avoid Scott's book. Someone books. needed
4: to be bullied way more than <laughs> yeah. they fucking were as a kid. Too and much adult. confidence. Too much confidence, wow. Scott. Jesus um, fucking Christ.
3: Yeah. I mean, w- what's unsettling to this about this to me is that, like, the lesson Scott gets from mushrooms, and the lesson a lot of people do is that, like, Wow. The actual meaning of reality and the nature of it is actually is extremely open ended and dictated by perception. And maybe you shouldn't buy into your own bullshit to such a a strong extent or believe anything so strongly because so much of reality is kind of altered by your brain chemistry, by what's in your stomach, all this kind of stuff. That's a good thing to learn. It's a different thing to be like don't do drugs, kids. I have developed a way to manipulate your mind using my books that works even better. That's um, cult shit. That, that is culty, right? Yeah, that's unsettling as fuck. That
4: is something I, like, I ha- remember a youth minister when I was a kid telling us that, you know, we didn't need to try drugs because he could help us get high on Jesus. And I was like, mm, I don't like this guy at all. Yeah. Nothing about this is good. No,
3: no. And and Scott, he, he kind of stops experimenting with hallucinogens I think pretty early here and gets really into something that is not necessarily culty but it's very cult adjacent Um, and it's called he, he gets into a practice of affirmations now there's nothing wrong inherently with the idea of affirmations affirmations are a practice that's birthed by the new thought movement which in self, itself evolved from books like Think and Grow Rich and The Science of Getting Rich in the early 1900s. Yeah. And they're part of a batch of techniques broadly called neuro-linguistic programming by some practitioners. The basic idea... And I'm 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 flattening a little bit here, but the basic idea behind an affirmation is that if you regularly repeat what you are going, what you want to do, what you want to have happen in your life, some sort of goal or dream, and if you're extremely specific and extremely consistent about the repu, uh, uh, the, the 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 about like repeating it, then that will in some way influence the future and allow you to achieve that goal. Versions and like this is like the secret. And I was going to say this is this, the this, fucking right? secret. Yeah, the the early kind of basic ideas, there's nothing inherently like if you are if your goal is to to write a novel and every single morning you wake up and write down on a piece of paper, I am going to write a novel and you focus on it, you know, for a minute or two while you're having your coffee um, and that helps you to sit down every day and work on that novel. Well, that's great, right? That's a perfectly reasonable thing to do, you know, or if, if your affirmation is I'm going to, you know, uh, get. You know, this good at at lifting weights or I'm going to get this good at drawing or I'm going to learn how to, I don't know, fix engines or whatever. Perfectly reasonable. The problem is when people start to treat them like the secret does, like they're magic. Like rather than it just being like, well, focusing your mind on a task can help you accomplish that task. It's by telling, by writing down and in this very specific way, this thing that I want to have happened, I am altering the universe, right? Mm -hmm. In order to like give myself a thing. That's, there's a lot that's problematic, there's a lot that's problematic about the secret, um, especially when you, like, talk to the way people who are into this kind of stuff sometimes talk about illness, right, where they're like, oh, you can overcome, you know, your hereditary illness or your 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 chronic illness or whatever um, via these techniques, where it's like, well, no, no amount of writing affirmations is going to stop you from being paralyzed, yeah, that's right? That's new age like, Mary <laughs> Big right there. That, like, that's, that's, that's just not how it works. That's Christian um, science
4: with a different label. What the hell?
3: Yeah. So I, I'm not shitting like I know I know people who are like yeah I do this and it's just a thing that yeah. helps me focus my mind that's whatever that's fine um, but Sc- Scott takes it in in very much like the secrety direction where like I have figured out some sort of secret way to break the code of the universe um, yeah and it's you can see the appeal for a guy whose whose brain has developed this way because affirmations give him something that the philosophies he had adhered to earlier in his life had always lacked, which is a way of predicting the future and also a way of explaining how, in his eyes, he was consistently the special boy who succeeded at long odds.
4: It, which is, it always goes back yeah. to he's the main character. But, yeah, I mean,
3: and I, I think there's something that's, like, understandable here as both, you know, you and I are both people who get to do what we love for a living. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's, a, that is a tremendous privilege and the result, in addition to the result of hard work, always the result of great fortune. Cause there's always people who are skilled and talented who never make it. In, oh, absolutely. In, in the, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you recognize that as, as a creative person, there's a fear in there, right? Cause it means that among other things, it means that it could stop working for you at any point.
4: Right. And that is a and, very understandable anxiety. I think a lot of creatives have. Yeah. Because you, it is, things change, odds change. My, you know, yeah. What worked for me 20 years ago won't work now. I have to mm-hmm. constantly rework and keep yeah. pushing. And
3: most, I think, most reasonable people in, in our position, like, you know, there's a, a variety of things to look at it, including, well, I support a basic income and stuff like that, uh, universal healthcare and shit, so that these fears are at least, you know, less involved with like maybe I will wind up like dying on the street if my ability to, to write shit goes away. Um, Scott, I think takes pivots to like, I need to find an explanation for how I'm succeed. I've succeeded because I've hacked reality because then it's something that I can keep doing and it won't ever fall apart on me. Right. Yeah. Um, Like that's, I think what, why he winds up kind of falling for this stuff. But again, I've gotten ahead of myself, but you know, who's ahead of everything and everyone.
4: Um, I would assume. Well, I can't make the joke. You're not allowed to do the, the child Hunting Island jokes anymore, are you?
3: No, no, no. Not not after the FBI busted them. Uh, no, yeah, no. We'll we'll get in trouble again.
4: Okay, sorry. Um, I assume it is the fine uh, conveyors of products and services what sponsor this program? Yep. Um,
3: that's that's we we have on now. So here we go.
4: Oh, we are B-A-K. Um that was the best product and service I have ever been delivered.
3: I know. I, I, I for one, uh, my nipples are hard as diamonds right now. Mm. So, <clears throat> for years, Scott put away his artistic ambitions and focused on his career. He got uh, an MBA at UC Berkeley while he's still working for this bank. Uh, even though an evening, like, and it, it's through, like, his bank actually pays for him to start the program. Oh, back when, uh, they, which when is,
4: uh, employers would actually do that for you. Yeah,
3: stuff like that happened. Uh, he claims he did really well. Uh, and he claims that, but he also claims that, like, I thought that starting this program would give me more opportunities for getting promoted. But alas, this was not to be. And here's what he writes in 2008. The media had recently discovered that my employer had virtually no diversity in management. When an assistant vice princip- president position opened up and I was an obvious candidate for the spot, my boss called me into her office. I was the most qualified candidate for the position, she explained. But because of pressure to be more diverse, there was no hope for another generic white male to get promoted anytime soon.
4: Oh, my fucking God. I was. <gasps> yeah. It's, it's,
3: so this is where we obviously at this point in Scott's actual life. He's not saying shit like this. Right. But this is from 2008 when he makes this claim. But this is where we start to see like the the kind of resentments that are going to build in him exploding uh, in into a racist tirade come from. Um, and it's interesting. This is the first time Scott would claim to have been harmed by a diversity program, but he's going to claim this happens a bunch more times in his life. Um, In fact, from here on, every setback in his career, including the failure of the of the Dilbert TV show, is eventually blamed on nefarious individuals wanting to hire non-white people instead of him. And so it's worth it. I can't find my car
4: keys. (laughs) Diversity. (laughs) Yeah.
3: There's a DEI program that took him. It's worth digging because he keeps doing this. It's worth digging into, like, how credible the claim is that Scott didn't get a promotion because he was a generic white man. So the bank he's employed by at this point, it was called Crocker National Bank, and it was a pretty big institution back in its heyday. In fact, it was one of the big four banks behind the construction of the first transcontinental railroad in North America. But during the time Scott worked there, it had been outgrown by a number of more prominent banks. For a time, it managed to do okay because it it was famous for its really good customer service. Um, but this starts to fall apart in the early 1980s, along with a lot of stuff. Right? We talk about this in our Jack Welch episodes, but the 80s is, in addition to being the Reagan era, a real transitory period for a lot of aspects of the U.S. economy. A lot of companies that had been huge in the early 1900s fall apart then.
4: Yeah, that's. Uh, um, I I'm old enough to remember like just how stressful that yeah. was to all adults around me.
3: Yeah. And in 1981, two years before Scott starts his MBA, Crocker had been purchased by the British Midland Bank. Um, this was not a great sign, and its health as an institution declined throughout the mid-1980s. Scott claims that he was denied of a, pro- a promotion because of diversity in 1986. That year is also the year that Crocker Bank collapsed. Um, and it's it's interesting. He acknowledges in his book that like a few months after he quit, because he quits because he doesn't get a promotion and and moves to another company. A few months later, every person in his old group at the bank had been downsized. And the way he frames this right after saying that like he'd been denied a promotion for diversity reasons, it kind of makes it look that like the firing of his coworkers was related, that like they did some purge for diversity purposes. The reality is that Crocker bank fell apart. Like it collapses the year that he leaves. He does not lose out on a promotion because of black people. He loses out on a promotion because the business falls apart.
4: But isn't that how it usually goes? Is Like, how can I retroactively make this the fault yes. of yes. the other? And that is, that is
3: exactly the way that it, that this is like, that it actually happens, right? Like it, the reality at the time is that the bank just falls apart. He doesn't get a promotion because uh, like it, it, his job it would ends. mean nothing.
4: You wouldn't have a job yeah. in a month anyway, buddy.
3: Yeah. And, and, but, and, and then later he kind of retroactively decides to blame it on diversity. Um, He moves to Pacific bell where he finishes his MBA. And again, he hopes that because he's got this MBA, he's going to get promoted rapidly at Pacific bell. And it's interesting because when he talks about this, he frames it in a self-deprecating way, saying he did his best to act like he deserved a better job um, and that this act was convincing enough that he gets put on a shortlist for promotion. But then this happens. One day, my boss called me into his office and informed me that while I was indeed management material, the company had been getting a lot of bad press lately about their lack of diversity in management. It's the
4: exact fucking same story yeah it's the exact
3: same story he and copy it's not and paste it. fucking oh true like this happened in in that book he writes in 2008 these two stories are like a paragraph away from each other like it's it, it there's no subtlety that scott is capable of here
4: uh, even um, if his boss has told him that like he yeah. should be smart and say oh you're just making him a fucking excuse and you're and, trying to blame it, someone else it's it's like the whole back in the 80s hey you know um mexico and japan are taking your jobs no they're not taking our jobs they're taking jobs are offered to them. It's just corporations are sending your jobs away. Yeah. Blame yeah the right your employer person. took your job. Yeah.
3: But it's interesting. So Scott has this habit of like being fake self-deprecating, like self-deprecating, but not really meaning it. Mm-hmm. Um, And it kind of undercuts his point here. Cause he's like, Oh, I hoped I, I, I thought I'd tricked him into thinking I was the best person for this promotion, you know, because they didn't know I was really just an idiot. And but then also I didn't get the job because of diversity. It's like, well, maybe you just weren't qualified for the job, Scott. <laughs> maybe right. You ever did think of that? Like, yeah. <laughs> um, at any rate, his response to not getting this promotion that he apparently felt he deserved was to decide to stop putting in work at his job beyond the bare minimum. Um, Now, this, he says, wound up being key to his future success, because now that he's got all this free time, he starts drawing comics again, and he decides to start publishing them. Uh, He has no idea how to do this, so he starts writing affirmations again. Now, I don't think the affirmations do much here, but what does do something is that Scott also takes a practical step towards making his cartoon dreams a reality. He's watching TV one day, and he comes across a show on a local channel by a cartoonist named Jack Cassidy. That's like about how to draw cartoons and like how the industry works. Um, Scott sees this kind of by chance. He finds Jack's mailing address and he writes him a letter being like, hey, I want to be a cartoonist. How do I start? And he encloses some of his comics. Um, and I, I looked into Jack Cassidy for this because he's he's key to Scott's career. And he's actually a pretty interesting guy. He's still alive, or at least according to the Internet. He has been teaching cartooning and and publishing cartoons for decades and decades at this point and prior to being a cartoonist and a cartoon instructor he spent 23 years in army special forces um oh, shit. which is i think
4: not the most common cartoonist background that is not that is <laughs> yeah. um shit i mean there's a lot of cartoonists who have been in the military and there's a lot yeah. of military cartoonists that's a big but, thing but
3: yeah yeah 23 years in special forces is a, a pretty unique background for a, a, a cartoon instructor guy anyway interesting dude and he also, he's like a really nice person because Scott sends him this letter kind of sight unseen. And he responds, Casty responds with like this very detailed letter being like, here are books that you should buy that talk about how the industry works and how to submit cartoons and how to submit packages to different syndicates. A very like the best advice you could basically get. That's right? really kind of him because
4: I yeah. love cartoons I, I've met, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, will not do
3: that. yeah, y- you get the feeling that Jack legitimately loves the field and mm-hmm. wants there to be more people making cartoons. Right? I, I like, like that. yeah, that's awesome. great, great, yeah, great guy. Uh, as far as I can except I can tell. for
4: the person he's <laughs> Now
3: that's yeah, that that is the downside of encouraging people is some of them might be Scott Adams. Um, but Scott takes his advice. He puts together like a, a packet of cartoons and he submits them for publication at various places. Uh, and he gets rejected. Nobody takes his first packet. And again, this convinces him to give up and stop drawing for a while. That, that's um, just so
4: com- like uh, very normal story. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of people understand that. Like syndicates, even now as newspapers are receding, get thousands upon thousands upon thousands of submissions, and yeah. they can't take more than a handful.
3: No, and and what's interesting to me here is that Jack Cassidy understands this, and so a year after Scott. M- mails him and he sends back this response out of the blue without being prompted Jack sends Scott another letter and he's like hey Scott I was just thinking about you the other day I wanted to tell you again you know I thought you you were talented and I thought your packet was really good and I hope that you're still trying to get published um looks is, sweet
4: guy well, yeah Please such shit. a
3: nice thing decent I thing hope, to do I hope he is
4: having the best life right yeah I,
3: I mean he seems to still be active and stuff he's written a bunch of like books on cartooning that's um, awesome, a, a really nice thing to do, and it encourages Scott to give it another shot. Oh, I hear um,
4: again Never minds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, look, we
3: can't. <laughs> this is again the downside of encouraging people. It's like if you're a if you're a really good math teacher, um, you're going to encourage a lot of kids who might otherwise have not liked math to maybe understand the world on a deeper level, and that's lovely. You might also be responsible for the next atom bomb, like. <laughs> You can't know. You can't know. When do you encourage people to do stuff? I know, our school didn't
4: work out for you, buddy, but have you thought about public speaking? Yeah, exactly. Oh, no! No! Um,
3: Yeah, uh, tragic. So, uh, Scott takes his advice. Uh, He submits a bunch of stuff. Um, And yeah, uh, quote, During this period, I was drawing pre-Dilbert and pre-Dogbert comics on the whiteboard in my cubicle, complete with witty captions about workplace happenings. Cartoons naturally draw attention, and soon my coworkers were asking the names of my two regular characters. I didn't have names for them, so I held a name-the-nerd contest on my whiteboard. My co-workers would trickle in during the day and write their ideas for names. The suggestions were traditional nerd-sounding names. None of them stood out until one day my ex-boss, Mike Goodwin, walked in, picked up a dry erase marker and wrote, Dilbert. This was one of those moments where you feel as if you can see the future. I ended the contest immediately. It felt as though I was learning the character's name, not naming him. The name Dilbert fit him so perfectly, I literally got a chill.
4: How so, boring was that fucking office that they're like, yeah, it does, let's just go
3: over to Scott's cubicle. And- it does seem like a waking nightmare to and have that job.
4: Even like the boss is like, shit, I hate being here too. Uh, yeah, Dilbert. Dilbert.
3: Now, in a Q&A on Reddit some years later, Scott would elaborate that the boss who suggested Dilbert as a name had learned the name from a World War II era comic published by the Navy. Dilbert was like the the example bad pilot where they would be like, Don't do what Dilbert does. Look, he's done this bad thing and it it caused this problem. And it's actually, this is still a thing. There exists to this day a Navy pilot training device called the Dilbert Dunker, uh oh, wow. which is used, yeah, it, it's this weird contraption that they used to train jet pilots and helicopter pilots in escaping a submerged craft. So it the sim- boss
4: basically saying, don't be this shitty employee. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be, fucking work. Yeah. It's kind of, it's
3: kind of, yeah, don't, don't, I think it's more of a safety thing for the Navy where it's like, don't do this stuff that will get you killed because look at, you know, and Dilbert's the example. I'm sure his boss just had the name in his head from his time in, you know, the Navy or something like that. Um, but whatever, you know, the, the important thing about this is that the Navy had an opportunity to sue Scott Adams and save us all from Dilbert forever, and they failed at their duty to protect this country. Which Once is why again, we need to defund so them. No,
4: no, I'm not yeah. <laughs> I don't feel like getting Navy people. Bad at me. Have, no, 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 it's fine. They're just it's just the Navy. The Navy professionally, yeah. they're all sweethearts and they've been through. Yeah. Like, they get treated bad enough by the navy don't even me shitting on them too.
3: <laughs> no i'm 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 going after him for this this is <laughs> this is the worst navy failure since pearl harbor
4: oh my fucking god okay um i'm just gonna back away from you I'll let you take all of that slack. i'm a
3: bad vest i'm sorry uh no 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 it's it's fine bring it bring it on navy i'm on land you can't do shit <laughs>
4: <laughs> he's like guys in their white suits just like dragging a rowboat down the highway yeah
3: <laughs> sitting in sitting in their aircraft carrier off the course coast of oregon just screaming <laughs> you're not allowed on the dirt motherfucker anyway whatever scott adams back to him yeah so scott's initial comics they're fine uh like i don't know they're like they're not uh great or anything um early dilbert is not based around office humor like the characters an engineer but that's kind of like what it is. What's interesting to me is that like his art, his early art is definitely like um, a downgrade from the stuff he was was drawing as a kid because it's also a lot rougher than it it's gonna be. Really, though, it's 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 fine except for his um his letterings dog shit, which is kind of one of the feedbacks he gets from the syndicate. Sophie'll show you one of his early comics here. What's interesting to me is that like in this packet because he he provides in that book some of his first packet, there's some like a couple of political strips. And they're not conservative like the one that we're looking at here is kind of an anti-Reagan one making fun of like the Star Wars missile defense system um, like which is his oh, lettering yeah. is
4: fucking like that. Yeah, it's
3: terrible lettering. That's
4: weekly newspaper comic lettering. Yeah. Um,
3: you know, you, 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 everybody goes through a period here. I mean, just at, at my lettering me. isn't
4: great either. I can't say yeah. too much, but Jesus.
3: It is compelling to me that like, yeah, oh, early on he's making fun of like Reagan and the waste of the Star Wars system. That's interesting. That's that's going kind of part. There's a there's a surprise reveal coming up here, um, and it's it's that Scott has uh, has suffered some like kind of uh, sudden shifts in his personality that this is evidence of. Um. So Scott's pretty bad at naming his characters to start. His first pick for Dogbert's name is Dildog. Um, he changes this before submitting his packet
4: because no! that's
3: that is if you're if the name of your character is just dildo with an extra letter stuck on it
4: that is probably not going to make Dill publication Dill my friend be brought back, I'm not lying <laughs> yeah.
5: I couldn't agree more Randy save
4: dildo Dildo is going in something positive because King Features will never let it be in Popeye, you, he can't stop nice. you he
3: can't stop you
4: Oh no nothing. <laughs> Hearst media can stop me from a lot of things if they Oh no 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 yeah I meant for 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 something. Oh that's being, yeah. yeah no no, no. Yeah. He, he has Jailed no right. Hawk. God damn it. So Oh my Jesus Christ. How did yeah.
3: he- Very funny. Very funny. Was he but by a at
4: this point? Like what the I- fuck?
3: That is that part's unclear with uh, with old Scott, Um, but but we'll talk. He's going to there's going to be some weird like incel adjacent stuff, although he he gets married a few times
4: remotely. Um,
3: So by 1988, uh, he's gotten his his package polished enough. um, (laughs) That's I didn't mean it that way. That's 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 (laughs) Uh, to send off Dilbert comics to a syndicate. Now, shockingly, this is an uh, again, you just talked about how many submissions these people get. One of these syndicates responds. He gets a bunch of rejections, and then somebody responds saying they're interested. And it's, it's Scott when he sees the syndicate that said yes to him has no idea who they are. And like when he gets on the phone with the representative, is like, "Yeah, who are you guys?" Now
4: oh, I'm telling do you the this basic fucking research, dude. Tell,
3: well, th- this is particularly gar- uh, galling because d- the syndicate who responds that he has never heard of is United Media.
4: They're one of the big. The, the, the... <laughs> they published Peanuts, like yeah,
3: <laughs> like I knew who United Media was as a kid in the mid '90s, just because like I'd read a bunch of books by cartoonists. Weren like they everyone, United
4: Features at that point. United yeah, Features I think there were it? United
3: Features by that yeah. point. But, but still, like, it's,
4: like, it's the one that does Peanuts, and they did <laughs> yeah.
3: Garfield as well. And point. Garfield, yeah, they're massive. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is like. Definitely the luckiest break this man has ever had in his entire life. He,
4: literally, um, he got the top of the, at the time, the yeah. number one syndicate. you want to do this break. Like, Who the fuck are you, assholes?
3: Yeah. And I will say to his credit, when he gets signed on, he does send a thank you letter to Jack Cassidy.
4: Um, you know, good. Yeah. That yeah. is the first thing that it sounds like he saw about another person so far.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 it's one of those things. I, it's, it's unfortunate for us all that Scott wound up having the, the, career that he had. Um, I do hope Jack Cassidy feels good about what he did because that was a legitimately very nice thing to do. I mean, for a again,
4: like I, yeah, I agree with him. I like the idea yeah. of more cartoonists. Yeah, but there's that caveat of you cannot guarantee uh, you won't get. <laughs> but what if they become Scott Adams, Scott Adams, <laughs> Gavin, <laughs> Gavin, Mc, Gavin McInes, or Alcat. Yeah. Those three yeah. are always. With bullets in the chamber waiting to go that, off that's that's right yeah um
3: tragic so here we go uh he gets signed uh Dilbert starts out uh by 1990 it's in 50 papers by 1991 it hits 100 that sounds like a lot today because there are like maybe 30 newspapers left in the country yeah um and most of them are just seo aggregators but back in 1990 that's the not newspaper- much. At yeah, th- th- that's not like the big comic strips, like fucking Calvin and Hobbes and shit, are in like two thousand papers, right? Yeah. Um, and it's one of those things: fifty to one hundred newspapers. You're you might make like a couple of grand a year doing that. You're not going to make all that much money, right? It's, it's like it's not a bad like little side income, but it it is not enough for Scott to quit his his day job, right? At
4: that point, like it's it's only gotten worse. I'm sad to say, as there's less yeah. newspapers. It's generally most cartoonists I have met. Uh, unless they're like doing comics like Blondie or like really huge like legacy comics that've been around for a long time, or Garfield, um, you have a, you have a second job, or this is your second job, but this is you have a main job. You do,
3: yeah, and and that's that's the situation that Scott's in, and this is a thing like I'm sure most cartoonists who succeed have this period where he's he's doing five comics a week which is a i mean anyone who's ever done that grind i'm sure as you'll say that's a hell of a gig like that that is work um but was he
4: doing five or six was he doing
3: the monday through saturday i think he's doing just monday for through saturday but it might actually be well, six. No, he's six, seven, six, six comics and then seven yeah a sunday um and then he's also he's doing um in addition to doing dilbert he's also working like a full-time gig uh, yeah no that like, that's i have lot, done that you know, that is hard it is he really is, fucking hard running himself pretty ragged. Um, and he's kind of, he's getting frustrated because you know, three, four years go by and Dilbert's not really a big deal. And he's not making that much money at It's kind of exhausting. And he's, tr- he's starting to worry that like, is this something that's never going to turn into anything more than a side gig for me? And so it's during this period that he makes a decision that's gonna probably wind up being the actual smartest thing he ever did, which is Scott being kind of a nerd has gotten interested in the internet before most people. Um, And so in like, I think it's something like 1992 or 93, he starts sticking his AOL address on his cartoons. Um, And this lets his readers email him with ideas for the strip and requests for more of the stuff that they like. And he notices all of the people reaching out to me, like the comic strips I do that are like office humor. Maybe I should refocus the comic around just sort of office jokes Um, And so he does. In 1994, he publishes his first book of cartoons, and it sells well enough that Dilbert's now in 400 newspapers. And the comic starts to hit critical mass right as a few other things happen that Scott had nothing to do with. One of them is that the early 90s are a period in which everyone else on Wall Street is following in Jack Welch's footsteps. They're firing huge chunks of their workforce to pump up the stock price. Layoffs are this massive thing. Um, and also the dot-com boom is just starting to kick off, right? Yeah. Um, and this leads to, in addition to making a lot of money for some people, it leads to a bunch of the dumbest ideas for companies that have ever existed, right? A lot of yeah. real stupid businesses start in the there, mid There 90s. were definitely
4: a lot of, um, I, I was becoming an adult at this point in time, and yeah. getting on the web, and it's like, why, why the fuck do you need that? Who the, Who is the the market
3: and so because while all of this is happening, he's getting feedback from workers who like his comics and are dealing with these irritations in their jobs. And they're like, hey, you should do a comic about, you know, the layoffs that just hit this company. You should do a comic about this really dumb, you know, tech idea. Right. And so he starts doing all this stuff and it causes him to kind of go a very early equivalent of viral with a lot of workers. Right.
4: Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. Uh, there was nothing like that at that point. I mean. no. Yeah, exactly. You they had, in Blondie, yeah, Dagwood has an office, but we don't really even know what kind of office Dagwood works in. We just I, I assume
3: is... some sort of sandwich-related job. But... <laughs> so, early Dilbert cartoons mock incompetent managers and all that kind of stuff. Um, Scott notes, quote, Dilbert became shorthand for bad management, oppressed cubicle workers, and high-tech life. Readers imbued Dilbert with their own meaning, beyond anything I had intended for it. And this is kind of why a lot of people early on uh, think that Dilbert is kind of anti-capitalist or at least anti-corporate um is as Scott notes it's them putting reading into the comics something he had never meant because he just is sort of tapping into the frustrations people have but he doesn't he's not do he's not motivated to do that his readers tell him he should do that and he's smart enough to be like oh maybe I should like feed this sort of hunger within my audience but it's not actually based on something that he's super strongly believes. Cause again, Dilbert initially had not been about that at all. Um, that is kind of a crucial thing to recognize. And I think it's sort of, it's part of why some people wind up being kind of confused by why Scott goes the way that he does in 1995, Scott gets his biggest break, uh, because the saddest day of my entire childhood happens. And Bill Watterson announces that Calvin and Hobbes is coming to an end. Yeah. Um, Man, that is the most I remember crying as a little kid.
4: I think was it uh, ninety five the year also that Gary Larson said for the second time he was doing the far side and walked away like yeah, I think, I think, I think it's
3: right the day the comics died. Um a rough rough time
4: for comics lovers. In the uh, 90s. It was not a fun time. I no. Think, I think that was also the year this is probably more for me than anyone else. Yeah. Like uh, Floyd Norman stopped doing the Mickey Mouse comic. Yeah, that, that was not a funny year. No, it, it,
3: it's one of those things, you know, that's a lot to take at once as a kid who likes comics. The older I've gotten, the more grateful I am that Watterson did what he did because it it was kind of a lesson especially as, as things have gone the way they've gone with a lot of the entertainment industry and cre- the creative industry. I think the most valuable lesson a man in his unparalleled position could have given kids, which is like, sometimes it's okay to say enough.
4: Yeah. Yeah. That is, I think a very important lesson and on it, let's be real. Yeah. He and a syndicate were at each other's throat at that point in time. And oh if, yeah. If, if he had kept doing the comic, it like he was taking more and more breaks. They were doing yeah. more and more reruns at that point in time too. Mm-hmm. It would just only have gotten worse.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So I, anyway, uh, but at the time this works out incredibly well for Scott because without, you know, we, we just talked about how many cancellations there were Dilbert suddenly like a lot of comics, like a lot of newspapers are like, well, we've got all these holes suddenly in our lineup. Oh, and this Dilbert comic just published a book and it's circulation doubled. Maybe we'll pick it up too. Right. So suddenly hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of papers start Adopt like bringing in Dilbert because they don't have anything else. Um, now, Scott claims in his 2008 book that this led to a surge of purchases for the Strip, which allowed him to quit his day job. Quote, people often ask if I quit or was fired. It was a little of both. In the final few years of my day job, Dilbert had turned me into a minor celebrity among technology workers. My coworkers found my fame useful in attracting customers to the lab to see Pacific Bell's latest offerings. By then, Dilbert was consuming too much of my time for me to be effective at my day job. It was clear I would soon need to quit or be fired. That's when my coworker, Anita Freeman, who was the prototype for the Alice character, suggested a deal. With our boss's consent, she and my other coworkers in the lab offered to pick up my slack anytime I needed to leave work for Dilbert reasons. In return, I agreed to schmooze customers who were Dilbert fans. As part of that understanding, I told my boss any time the arrangement didn't work for him and he needed the budget for a better purpose, I would be happy to leave. And eventually, he took me up on the offer. Now, if that's true, that's again an example of how lucky Scott has been with
4: the people in his life. Yeah, no he shit. Contributed like, massively to his success. Would have been like, yeah. Hey, dude, I knew because other jobs is more important to you. Yeah. I have it, work too, but I'll do your work. What the fuck? Wow, that's a either the kindest coworker or a uh, big crock of shit.
3: Yeah, it's one of the two. And it's, it's, it's again, it's so interesting to me that he becomes so obsessed with like the secret, like universe hacks that allowed him to succeed when it's like, no, you succeeded because a lot of really nice people gave you, which is,
4: by the way, why anyone succeeds in a creative profession. You know, most of us have had at least one person say, you know what, I think you should, we should take a chance on you. Yeah. Let me share your link. Let me do this. Let me do this.
3: Absolutely.
4: Uh huge part of
3: success in a career. i mean honestly like just for me uh, i i would never have had a writing career if it hadn't have been for like this adult who was a friend of mine in world of warcraft who like i sent a piece of fiction i'd written and she was like you know because every other adult in my life was like yeah don't rely on writing as a career and she was like oh you should do this for a living and uh, you know sometimes that's all it fucking takes but it's always the result not just of hard work but of like getting fucking lucky scott clearly got lucky although i do suspect this specific story is a lie um, and kind of a baffling one because the evidence suggests Scott was in fact laid off for cost-cutting reasons per an interview he gave to the Sacramento Bee in 1995. Um, I don't get why he would kind of make up this more elaborate story like there were mass layoffs at Pac Bell and he got, you know, canned by them. Um, And the story of getting canned in layoffs as the Dilbert guy is actually kind of more compelling to me than like this weird arrangement but i don't know maybe parts of it are true but it's, but the it's to doesn't me. make
4: him the special boy yeah yeah
3: as opposed to like yeah it, it's everyone it's loves peculiar. special boy scott
4: and everyone knows that special boy scott is supposed to save us yeah uh, from diversity so therefore yeah. we must all make sacrifices for him
3: yeah it's um he's he's definitely uh, again it's kind of more main character syndrome type stuff Um, At this point in Scott's career, uh, again, if you thought at all about his probable politics, you'd probably suspect maybe he was kind of a vaguely progressive guy because of how critical he is of aspects of how businesses work. But Adams makes it clear, again, he never meant it as anything but like shallow humor kind of often brought to him by his readers, and he was surprised that people read more into his work. And this attracted some early criticism for Scott. In 1997, a guy named Norman Solomon, who's a a journalist and a media critic— Wrote a book called "The Trouble with Dilbert." Solomon's kind of an interesting dude. He got surveilled by the FBI when he was fourteen for protesting to desegregate an apartment complex in Maryland, oh, which wow. is pretty cool. Uh, in '99, yeah, in '99, he won an Orwell Award for a collection of columns on deceptive media. Um, and then in '97, he writes this book. I mean, that's a couple years ago, but in '97, he writes this book about Dilbert. And by this point, by 97, Dilbert is like one of the biggest comic strips on the planet. Scott Adams is a new, very new millionaire at this point. And because the strips are so popular, not only is he in a bunch of newspapers, but businesses, all these corporations that he had been like mocking and making fun of have adopted Dilbert. Like people are paying to use Dilbert as an advertisement for their company, right? Which is kind of weird if you think about sort of some of the the messages that were in the early Dilbert comics and Solomon's book criticizes Adams for using Dilbert to improve the bottom line of the corporations he purported to mock writing quote Dilbert masquerades as the ultimate response to our predicament in a corporatized workplace and world, but it's a counterfeit kind of rebellion. It marks the supposed outer boundary of opposition to corporate machinery. But in fact, what Dilbert teaches through example is that the best we can hope for is a cynical aside and an acid quip. I mean, he's not wrong. I don't think he's wrong. I will say, you know, I think Solomon's probably a pretty cool dude based on his background. This is a silly choice, I think. Writing an entire book of why Dilbert's not really like a leftist masterpiece. That's a little silly, Uh, Norman. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people
4: thought Adams was was progressive, but I don't think anyone thought he was going to be the Left, yeah, Messiah.
3: yeah. Nobody thought Dilbert was there to bring down capitalism. Um, it's a little
4: bit of a horrible, is it? Yeah. The new Shane we're, yeah. we're
3: dude. yeah, man. I didn't really expect that from from Hagar. <laughs> um, it's 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 funny. Um, but anyway, I think most people, especially most people who are now multi millionaires because of their doodles. Would be like, oh, you know, a guy had a criticism. What, like, whatever. I'm still like rich and successful. This is yeah, not, has, has, has no impact on me. Scott, and this kind of is the first show of the kind of dude he is, cannot get over this. Oh, no. um, he responds in an interview with the LA Times Dilbert is just a way to make people laugh so they will transfer their money to me. I'm in the business of writing funny little things that fill up space in the newspaper. And when I get away with it, writing funny little books that people will buy. And again, like, that response in and of itself is okay, but Scott can't let it go. He keeps writing about Norman's criticism of him, and eventually he publishes a whole book the next year called The Joy of Work that has this super long... I remember as a kid I read this book as, like, a 10-year-old, and, you know, it's a bunch of, like, funny jokes about, like, offices, and then there's this long diatribe about Norman Solomon and how dishonest and evil he is, and, like, how fucked up! Like Scott's mocking him for like how badly his book sold. It was this one of those like of,
4: what was it the guy who wrote *Parson Park* who um, Michael Crichton. Crichton later like took made one yeah. of his uh, critics into a child molester in a book.
3: Yeah, with a and he 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 lengthily describes how small the man's penis is. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah.
4: But, like what? Like why? Very. Why do this? Why well, write an entire chapter by a guy who talks shit about you? I
3: mean, it, it's it, it's interesting because they are both like right wing guys who were very convinced of their own brilliance to, to such an extent that they like rejected very basically accurate like factual things like climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it 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 is interesting to me that like you've got these two right wing guys who get successful beyond their wildest dreams. That and all still weird,
4: a section of nerds can't stop yeah,
3: masturbating over like. And you, they, they, but they still. Any criticism makes them lose their mind, and it's like I don't know. Like for like Michael Crichton's, like, man, you wrote Jurassic Park. Why do you give a shit that somebody gave a book a bad review?
4: Like, really? you, you're
3: literally Michael Crichton.
4: Like, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> uh, I'll wipe my tears on yeah. uh, these hundred dollar bills that stuff my pillow at night.
3: Like I, yeah, I can fucking log onto Twitter at any point and find people saying that like. I'm a fucking CIA agent and like a piece of shit. My podcast terrible. And it's like, I don't you know. Whatever, man. Like, you know, like to, to quote from a ska musician I love, no matter what you do, it's going to piss people off.
4: Like, I know what you're talking about. Everyone loves me. Yeah. Everyone, everyone yeah, adores yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I do come. not have uh neoconservatives and alt-right people in my emails yeah wishing death on my child at all because i draw, draw popeye nope never happens you,
3: you definitely have left-wing creatives who kind of can't get over criticism too oh, so no, I not name saying like five yeah co- yeah, yeah. Off the top of my head but it does seem to be i think it for whatever reason it happens to a lot of these right-wing guys who have a lot less overall criticism to deal with like scott is not being deluged in hate mail one kind of weird dude writes a book about dilbert that doesn't sell very well and he he never gets over it like he is obsessed with this well, years think, later still is it
4: because it's the first odd. time he wasn't special boy scott
3: yeah i think it's also it's like the first time that he had to analyze if like he was what he was doing or someone had someone was trying to like critically analyze his work and like when you critically analyze somebody's work you will notice like flaws in it and stuff. Like I've read, I've read critical analysis of my work that, and had to be like, Oh, you know what? I may, I may actually alter some things about what I've done because, Mm -hmm. uh, or what I'm doing in the future, because I think this person has a point, you know? Sometimes Um, you have,
4: like everyone can improve and not all criticism is hatred.
3: Yeah. And I, I think that for Scott, the fact that criticism exists is again, it puts him back in this comfortable place of wondering maybe i what i'm doing won't always work maybe i won't always we be beloved and famous for my creative stuff and he can't handle that fear i do think it all comes down to that for him yeah um and yeah and that's what this episode comes down to. This has been part one of the Scott Adams series. <laughs> Randy, this wound up being more I'm, than I had expected. That's my fault
4: because I talk too much and I'm probably- No, no, no,
3: no, next. no, no, Thank you. Th- no, come on. No. R- Randy, you got any pluggables to plug? Um, oh, yes. I here? draw
4: an online comic called Something Positive at somethingpositive.net. It's net, It started off as a bunch of dick jokes. Now it's aging and uh, anxiety and dick jokes. And I also draw the Sunday Popeye comic at comicskingdom.com slash Popeye. Uh, Also, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, there's a feature called Alls and Popeye. uh, The Tuesday strips are drawn by Shadia Amin, an amazing cartoonist who also worked on Spider-Ham. And uh, I do the Thursday strips that focus on Popeye and his family. And... um, I guess if you want to scream at me online, go to the Twitter account Choo Choo Bear, C-H-O-O-C-H-O-B-A-R, and uh, just tell me how much you wish I would die, because why not?
3: Yeah, and I think what you should do is instead... Uh, again, either use your own drawing skills or if you want to stick it to those those fat cat artists, use an AI <laughs> generator and create some some unsettling Dilbert pornography to, um, to share with our friend
4: Scott. I think this weekend just for you, I'm going to draw Dilbert and Preg art just yes. for you. Yes, thank you. Thank I can't you. do it right now because I, I draw on my, my mm-hmm. computer and I'm, I'm doing this. But uh, I will definitely, just for you, I will not, not for Sophie. Sophie <laughs> has done nothing to deserve this. Thank no, you. If you. Thank you. I, I do, my only request <laughs> is that if you're
3: doing Dilbert alien impregnation fetish art, I think the right alien is Worf.
4: Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you know what? My, Michael <laughs> Dorn would tap that.
3: Michael Dorn would tap. Sure. I mean, who who wouldn't? I, I would, um, M-
4: Michael Dorn can do what he wants. I mean, yeah, like exactly. the, man's, the man's voice alone.
5: Yeah,
3: gor- gorgeous. Dilbert, Dilbert's a
4: lucky man is what I'm
5: saying. <laughs> uh, well, that was a pretty cool episode, Robert, but do you know what's cooler? No. It would be our Cooler Zone Media, our premium ad-free channel, now available exclusively on Apple Podcasts.
3: Wow, Sophie, that sounds like something that allows you to pay money and no longer hear ads. Is that basically what we're doing here?
5: That is uh, the gist of it. Uh, we will also uh, have exclusive Q and As with you, Robert Evans, and me, Sophie Lichterman, uh, 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 about on this very podcast, and uh, also lots of other things ad free. Yeah. Our yeah. entire our entire catalog of Cool Zone Media shows and ongoing new episodes ad free
3: stop stop bitching about the gold ads you don't have to listen to them anymore pay us however many dollars it it takes i don't know
5: so more ads so open so open your apple podcast app search for cooler zone media and subscribe today i'm going to thanks randy i hate myself goodbye Behind the Bastards is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com. Or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year
3: Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, SI, and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.
1: I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI